It is good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, as always, if you're a guest of ours, we're especially honored to have you with us. And if you're not a guest, we're honored to be together today as well. Uh, it's good to be together this morning. In the second chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a bunch of brothers and sisters. He's writing to a bunch of Christians. And he says, when I was with you, you know that I didn't try to impress you with me. He says, you know that I didn't try to impress you with my level of education. I never tried to impress you with my story. Paul tried to impress them with, with Jesus. In fact, Paul will tell them, if you remember, when I was with you, I didn't really talk about anything other than Jesus and his death on the cross. Paul was obsessed with the story of Jesus. For the next three weeks, we are going to be focusing on three specific days in the story of Jesus. The Friday, the Saturday, and the Sunday surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. What I think are the three most significant days in the story of Jesus. In one of his books, John Ortberg makes the observation that if you read any biography of a famous person, even if that person's death played a big role in their story, like Abraham Lincoln or Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., even if their death was a big part of their story, when you read their biography, their death will only take up a small portion of the story. And yet, four separate inspired biographers wrote stories about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in each one of their accounts, the, the, the part of the story about Jesus' death takes up a disproportionate amount of ink. They talk a lot about the death of Jesus. It was without a doubt the most significant death in the history of mankind. And today I want to talk about that Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. Now next week we're going to talk about Saturday, the in-between day the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then in two weeks, on Easter Sunday, we'll talk about the joy of the resurrection. But for today, we're going to start with Friday. And I actually want to begin with the end of the events on that Friday. We're going to start sort of at the end of the story and then work our way backwards. On the screen there, you'll see a very familiar image. We all recognize that image. Three crosses on a hillside. Those outer two crosses, two men are hanging who are guilty of the crimes that put them on the cross. The center cross, Jesus is hanging there. A man who is completely innocent of any crime. Above the middle cross, there's a sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The sign is written in Aramaic, it's written in Latin, and written in Greek. And as we look at that image, my question is, how did we get there? How did Jesus end up on a cross? I mean, how did this lover of sinners, blesser of children, this meek, mild man named Jesus, how did he end up being crucified as an enemy of the state? It's going to turn out that Friday is a day of mixed motives, strange alliances, secret meetings, people trying to, to please other people, 
politicians trying to posture themselves. It's a day of explosive emotions. There are a lot of people involved in the Friday story, and they all have an agenda. They all are after something. And today we're going to walk through that Friday story. And we're going to take a look at some of the major players in this part of the story. And we're going to take a look at their agenda and try to ascertain what agenda did these people have? Whose agenda prevailed? And most importantly, why in the world did Jesus have to die on a cross on Friday afternoon? Now, a major player that you need to be aware of, although a little bit behind the scenes, is Rome. Rome would say that Jesus died because Jesus was a threat to Rome. And anyone who was a threat to Rome had to die. Why was Jesus a threat to Rome? Well, he was referred to as, as Jesus the Christ, right? Again, that wasn't his name. That was a title. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And of course, all of Israel is waiting and watching and longing for a Messiah to show up because they are convinced that when the Messiah gets here, he's going to take care of Rome. When the Messiah shows up, he's going to, he's going to get us out from under this, this, uh, this bondage that we're under of Rome. He's going to free us from Rome. He's going to reestablish Israel as a rightful place, as a world power, just like back in the days of David. Now, there was a little bit of discussion and a little bit of um, uh, talk about exactly what the Messiah would look like, but everyone agreed when the Messiah came, he'd take care of Rome. Now, another thing that you need to be aware of is there was a bunch of wannabe messiahs in Jesus' day. A lot of people claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, we read about a couple of them in Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. The historian Josephus is going to tell us a little bit more about this man, Thutis. He actually led a revolt against Rome. He was captured by Rome, and uh, Josephus tells us that he was taken into the city of Jerusalem and beheaded in front of all the people. And the message is pretty clear. Don't mess with Rome. Another would-be Messiah was a guy by the name of Judas the Galilean. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Again, Josephus is going to tell us a little bit more about Judas the Galilean. Leads a revolt against Rome. Rome captures this guy, and Judas as well as history tells us about 2,000 of his followers are crucified by Rome. Again, the message is really clear. Don't mess with Rome. We have lots of crosses left. And by the way, this happened when Jesus would have been a small boy. In the days of the census, Judas was from Galilee. Jesus was raised in Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Jesus would have either witnessed all these crucifixions, or at least he surely would have heard about all of these crucifixions. So Jesus would have understood what happened to people, what Rome did to people who claimed to be a Messiah. 
Jesus is crucified by Rome, even though, even though he never claimed to be a military, strong arm, overthrow the government kind of king. In fact, he went out of his way to dispel that notion. If you remember, Jesus is asked once, hey, do we really need to be paying taxes to Caesar? And you remember Jesus' response, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In chapter 6 of John, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a handful of food, and the people want to take him away and make him king. They want a Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome. Jesus isn't going to have any part of it. John chapter 6, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And like all these other wannabe messiahs, Jesus refuses to lift a finger against Rome. So why does he wind up on a Roman cross? Well, let's back up in the story a little bit. Earlier seen on Friday, when the chief priests bring Jesus to a man by the name of Pilate. This man, Pilate, is a politician in the worst sense of the word. His only agenda is to protect and promote himself. Now, he wants to stay in good standing with Caesar in Rome, but the only reason he wants to do that is to protect and promote himself. Matthew 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, there's some things that we already know about Pilate. He's mentioned earlier in Scripture a couple of times, never in a favorable light, by the way. Uh, Jesus is told about uh, his actions of this man, Pilate, in Luke chapter 13. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus is reminded of an account that happens with Pilate, and it's a really disturbing account. Some Galileans were making sacrifices to God. They were actually worshiping God. And for whatever reason, Pilate thought that these people needed to be killed. So he has them killed as they're worshiping, as they're sacrificing, so that their blood actually mixes with the blood of the animals that they're sacrificing. They're in the temple. They're at the altar. They're worshiping God. And Pilate has them put to death. That's the kind of guy Pilate was. A historian by the name of Philo wrote that Pilate's rule was marked by bribery, insults, robberies, supreme cruelty, executions without a trial, and a furious, vindictive temper. It's Friday. And Jesus' fate seems to be sitting in the hands of Pilate. And here's the charge that they bring against Jesus when he's presented to Pilate. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a Christ, a king. Now, we've already seen that Jesus did not oppose payment of taxes to Caesar. And the truth was, none of the Jews wanted to pay taxes to Caesar. They hated Caesar. They all opposed taxes to Caesar, but Jesus didn't. But somehow, they had to pressure Pilate into doing what they wanted him to do. And so they tell Pilate, 
This Jesus, this guy, he's a problem for Rome. In fact, John is going to tell us they have an ace in the hole that they're going to play on uh, Pilate. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Pilate spends a little bit of time with Jesus and he realizes this guy's not guilty of anything. And he actually tries to set him free. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of who? Caesar's. If you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate didn't really want Jesus crucified. He knew the charges against Jesus were trumped up. He tried to talk the people out of it. But the reality is that Pilate really couldn't have cared less about a dime store, powerless, harmless Messiah. And so, in an attempt to keep control over the Jews, in an attempt to keep in good standing with Rome, Pilate hands Jesus over to the crowd. But the crowd shouted louder and louder for Jesus' death, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. Pilate didn't really want Jesus to go to the cross. So how did Jesus end up on a cross on Friday? Well, let's back up a little bit further in the story. If you remember, in this time frame, it wasn't very long ago that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. People were talking about that. People were talking about all of the miracles and all the teaching that Jesus was doing. You know, the, the crowds were talking about Jesus. The people who were hurting the sick, the, the marginalized, they were talking about Jesus. The religious leaders... They're talking about Jesus as well. But they see Jesus as a problem. And they're not exactly sure what to do about this problem. So they do what people have been doing for centuries. They call a meeting. John chapter 11. Uh, I've got verses uh, 47 and 48 on the screen, but let me back up to verse 45 to get a little bit of context. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in Him saw what Jesus did in that he raised Mary's brother Lazarus from the grave. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. By the way, this was not just an irrational fear. In fact, this is pretty much exactly what happened in A.D. 70. One too many revolts is led against Rome, and Rome's had enough, and they come in in A.D. 70, and they destroy the temple. In fact, to a large extent, they, they sort of wipe out the nation of Israel. And the Jewish leaders know this is a real possibility. Jesus knows this is a possibility as well. So before this hearing with Pilate, the, the Sanhedrin, which is sort of like the Supreme Court for the Jews made up mostly of chief priests and, and Pharisees and, and religious teachers. They have Jesus arrested on Friday. And they have their own little trial for Jesus. But the Sanhedrin has a, a very tricky task ahead of them. Somehow they've got to get the crowds, somehow they've got to get the Jewish crowds to hate Jesus. Now we just saw that the way that they got Pilate to hate Jesus was to say, this man, Jesus, he's a threat to Rome. But they can't tell the crowds that. 
Because if they tell the crowd that Jesus is a threat to Rome, they'll love him all the more. They want a threat to Rome. So they have to find another tact here. And what they do is they tell the Jewish crowd, this man Jesus, he's blaspheming the God of Israel. But they have a hard time making that false accusation stick as well. Mark chapter 14, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. This is so interesting. This is so ironic. Rome didn't have a reason to kill Jesus. Pilate didn't have a reason to sentence Jesus. The religious leaders didn't have a reason to accuse Jesus. The crowds didn't have a reason to hate Jesus. So why in the world did Jesus wind up on a cross on Friday afternoon? Well, let's back up just a little bit further. Back before the cross, before the meeting with Pilate, before the trial with the chief priest, before the arrest, back all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is alone in the Garden with the Father. And at this point of the story, Jesus has a lot of options available to him. There's a lot of things that Jesus could choose to do at this part of the story. He could do like Thutis and Judas the Galilean. He could decide to fight. Now, he's a young guy, charismatic. He, he could rally people around him. He could lead a revolt against Rome. He could have done that. Or he could have chosen to maybe go along to get along. Do you ever think, you know, what if Jesus were to side with the religious leaders? What if he would become just like the Pharisees? Imagine if he had the temple as his platform. Now, how much could Jesus influence Rome? How much could Jesus influence the world by working from within the system? Now, I guess he could have done that. Or he could have done like we sing sometimes. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set them free. You know, maybe just one more big miracle is all it would take to sort of swing the tide of public opinion. Maybe finally people would start paying attention to him and start following him. Jesus could have done a lot of things. But he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he prays to the Father. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, God's Son. Jesus, the, the Son of God who left heaven, who came to earth, said, I know what I have to do. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to dazzle. I'm not going to deal. I'm going to die. I'm going to die on Friday because that's the only way. Not my will, but yours be done. See, here's the reality. Jesus is so many things. He is a, a teacher. He's an example. He's a servant. He's a friend. I've had a lot of teachers that I've really respected in my lifetime. I have a lot of examples that I really look up to. I've seen a lot of servants do a lot of great things. I've got a lot of friends that I value. But I only have one Savior. The only Savior is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. 
Romans chapter 5. You know it well. Glenn referenced it in his communion talk. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. And most of you can probably quote the rest of it. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Which brings us back to where we started. Back to that image of Friday afternoon. Back to a cross on a hill outside the gates of Jerusalem. Back to a man hanging on the cross in the middle. The one with the sign nailed at the top of the cross for everyone to read. Written in Hebrew, the language of God's people. Written in uh, Greek, the language of the cultured world. Written in Latin, the language of Rome. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus outfought. He outthought. He outmaneuvered every single group. But mostly, he just outloved them. Now, every group on that Friday had an agenda Rome, Pilate, the Pharisees, the crowd. But if you go all the way back to the garden, Jesus had one agenda. And his agenda was just love. His plan was, was pretty remarkable. Jesus' plan was, I'll die on Friday. And he did. He died on Friday. And it wasn't because of Caesar. And it wasn't because of Pilate. And it wasn't because of the religious leaders. And it wasn't because of the crowds. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. On Friday, the one true Messiah in a world of wannabes laid down his life. On Friday, God declared his heart for me and you and every other sinner who's ever lived. On Friday, in a garden, a decision was made. On Friday, in a garden, Jesus said, I choose to suffer. I choose to die. I choose to love. The king is dead. The hand that once held a branch now gripped a hammer. The king is dead. This king of kings who embraced the very nature of a servant. This prince of peace broken for us. This commander of angels surrendered to a cross. This king joins us in our suffering, empathizes in our weakness, and he calls us to die with him, to lay down our lives, to live and surrender 
that we may be fully alive. The king is dead. Long live the king. The king is dead. Now, next week, we're going to talk about one of the greatest mysteries of all time. The Son of God, the king, lies in a tomb. It's almost unbelievable. And then in two weeks, we're going to talk about the resurrection. But today's Friday. And as much as it might appear on this Friday that it's all over, we know that sin did not have the last word. That death did not have the last word. We know that on that Friday, love triumphed over all. And my prayer is for us this morning, whatever might be going on in your life, whether it's good, whether it's troubling, whatever you have going on this week, wherever you have to go, whatever you have to do, my prayer is that that we'll be able to set aside a moment, just a moment, be filled with the wonder and the love of what Jesus was willing to do on that Friday and to reflect for a moment on the reality that was your sin and my sin, your guilt and my guilt. It was for our pardon that Jesus died on a Friday. Maybe this morning would be a good time to tell them how much you love them. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come to the front. Meet us there. Let's stand and sing.